Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming along. As that uh, video commenced, Neville said to me, how are you going to follow that? So with that ringing endorsement, would you turn to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15, reading at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, while our task this morning is to cover all of Luke chapter 15, there won't be time to go into chapter 16. I've read only the first two verses. It might be tempting to skip over those opening verses and dive straight into the chapter. But the importance of these two verses is not to be underestimated because it is these verses which set the scene and provide the context for the three parables that follow. And it is from these verses that we learn that the audience being addressed by the Lord Jesus consisted of two very different groups. On the one hand, you have the people described in verse 2 as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees were the strictest sect of Judaism. They devoted themselves to the meticulous study of the written law of Moses, the Torah. And they committed themselves to the scrupulous observance of that law. But in addition to the written Torah, there was in circulation a large supplementary body of rabbinic teachings and traditions which had been transmitted orally down through the years. They acted as a kind of fleshing out of the Torah. These were sometimes referred to as the oral Torah, and the Pharisees attached equal importance to these, which they sometimes called the traditions of the fathers. And about 170 years after the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, this comprehensive collection of teachings and sayings of scholars and rabbis, of case studies, of arguments and counter-arguments, covering virtually every aspect of Jewish life, were written down. And they became known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah is still hugely important in Judaism. You can read the Mishnah for yourself. It's available online. But you should know it does run to over 3,000 pages. But even the briefest of glances at the Mishnah will give you some idea of the detailed rules and regulations which governed the lives of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees prided themselves on their ability to keep these rules 
and regulations. The other group listening to the Lord Jesus consisted of those who in the eyes of the Pharisees were lax in their observance of the law. This group inevitably included those who were very much outsiders in Jewish society and singled out for particular loathing were the tax collectors who collaborated with the occupying Romans. Such people were viewed by the Pharisees with contempt and they are referred to in verse 1 as tax collectors and sinners. And the attitude of the Pharisees to this group is vividly illustrated in another parable told by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 18, which opens with the words, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. And he describes a Pharisee and a tax collector going to the temple to pray. Their prayers are polar opposites. The prayer of the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he reminds the Almighty of how well he has observed the law by referring to his fasting and tithing. And in contrast, we have the prayer of the tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. So this gives you an idea of the mindset of the Pharisees in the way that they viewed sinners. This was seen particularly clearly in relation to the food laws and the rules of ceremonial purity. The Pharisees attached huge importance to the food they ate and how it was prepared and to the washing of hands. But many fellow Jews did not adhere to these rules. And with such people, the Pharisees could not and would not eat. And then we have this man called Jesus of Nazareth, clearly well versed in the law. And yet this teacher of the law habitually associated with those whom the Pharisees referred to as sinners. He welcomed them. And even more shockingly, he ate with them. And unbelievably, some of these dining companions were tax collectors. In Luke chapter 5, we read about the Lord Jesus calling Levi, or Matthew, to follow him. Levi had been a tax collector, and on responding to the call, he holds a banquet for Jesus at his house. We read in verse 29 of chapter 5 that a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And then in verse 30 we read, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
And throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees constantly expressing their displeasure with and their disapproval of this practice. And Luke chapter 15 is the most detailed response by the Lord Jesus to this criticism. And so the chapter begins with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttering their familiar twofold complaint. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then the Lord proceeds to tell them the first of three stories, the parable of the lost sheep. And as he begins to tell this story, it is interesting to note his choice of words. He does not say there was a certain man who had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Instead, he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. This is directed at the Pharisees. To the Pharisees, the idea of being identified as a shepherd would be distasteful. Yes, in the Old Testament scriptures, there is the metaphor of God as the shepherd of his people. But the blunt reality was that shepherds were not regarded highly. And if you search in the Mishnah for references to shepherds, you will find confirmation of this. Being a shepherd was a proscribed profession. In one part of the Mishnah you read, a man should not teach his son to be a donkey driver, a camel driver, a sailor, a potter, a teamster, a shepherd, and interestingly, a grocer, since their occupations are those of robbers. And as for giving evidence in court, and I have not even reached the level of shepherds who are considered even worse than cattle herders as they are unfit for giving testimony. But notwithstanding this negative background, the central character of the first parable is a shepherd. And when the shepherd realizes that one of the sheep is lost, he goes out and searches for it until he finds it and he brings it home. This is an occasion for rejoicing. And the shepherd invites his friends and neighbors to join with him. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now we'll come back to that. And then the Lord Jesus follows up with a second story, the parable of the lost coin. This time he begins, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now here again, this imagery will take the Pharisees outside their comfort zone. Just as in the first parable, to be identified with a shepherd was distasteful, then to be compared with a woman, however indirectly, was likely to be offensive. This was a patriarchal society. Women had minimal legal rights. 
The general rule was that women were not allowed to be witnesses in the Jewish legal process. And on occasions when they were given, were allowed to give evidence, their evidence did not carry the same weight as that of a man. And yet it is a woman who is the central character of this parable. And when this woman realizes that one of her coins is lost, she immediately begins to search for it until she finds it. And when she finds it, here again, this is an occasion for rejoicing. And like the shepherd in the first parable, she calls her friends and neighbors together to celebrate the recovery of the lost coin. And as an aside, as I was preparing these remarks, it struck me that at the Lord's birth, who was it that testified that it was a Savior who has been born to you? He is Christ the Lord. It was the shepherds. And at the end of the Lord's life, who testified that he is not here? He has risen. It was a group of women. But to return to our chapter. In these first two stories, by using individuals on the margins of Jewish society, and by introducing the themes of lostness, and searching, and finding, and restoring, and rejoicing, the Lord Jesus is building up to the third climactic parable, the parable of the lost son. This parable is much longer than the other two much more detailed. Now we are moving from a dumb animal like a sheep. We are moving from an inanimate object like a coin. We are now dealing with people, with human beings. But here again, the imagery will be controversial and uncomfortable for the Pharisees. We are introduced to a father a man evidently of some substance who has two sons. The younger son goes up to his father and asks to receive his inheritance early. Now the Pharisees may have been uneasy about the imagery of the shepherd and the woman, but this is truly shocking. This is scandalous, this is disrespectful, this is tantamount to the son effectively saying to his father, I wish you were dead. But there is an important difference between this parable and the other two parables. In the first parable, we might have expected the shepherd to go and look for the lost sheep. In the second parable, we might have expected the woman to go and search for the lost coin. And in the third parable, we might have expected the father to respond to the impertinence of the younger son with outrage. He could have cut him off from his inheritance and expelled him from the home. But this father doesn't do that. He accedes to the request and divides his property between the two sons. The younger son receives what he has asked for, 
And then we read, not long after that, he got together all he had and takes off to a distant country and squanders his wealth in wild living. Famine strikes, and he began to be in want. He takes a certain course of action. We might call it plan A. Here again, there is more unpleasant detail for the Pharisees to deal with. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, to a Gentile. And surely there is a reference, an allusion here to the tax collectors working for their Gentile masters, the Romans. And what does he do for this Gentile master? He looks after his pigs. To the Jews, the pig, of course, was unclean. It was forbidden to eat its flesh. And being reduced to looking after pigs for a Gentile master in a distant country were all indicators of just how far the younger son had strayed from his Jewish roots. All these factors emphasize his lostness. But plan A doesn't work because verse 16 tells us that no one gave him anything. And so he devises plan B. This plan is to return home and persuade his father to take him on as a hired servant. And this brings up the subject of repentance. In the first parable, we don't read of the sheep repenting for being lost. Of course not. And yet the Lord Jesus teaches that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Likewise, in the second parable, we don't read that the coin repented for being lost. That would be absurd. And yet again, the Lord states that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what is this connection between being found and repentance? To the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, repentance consisted of three elements. One, you confessed your sin. Two, you made reparation or restitution for the wrong you had done. And three, you proved how repentant you were by what you did. Your repentance had to be shown. It had to be demonstrable. It had to show quantifiable, measurable, self-sufficient change. That's how you showed repentance. And that is precisely what the younger son intended to do. He would confess his sin. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He would work for his father as a hired man and so be able to earn money and then begin to make restitution for the wealth he had squandered. And three, in this way, he would achieve some degree of reinstatement and reintegration into his family and community. 
that is precisely what did not happen. In the words of verse 20, he got up and went to his father. And then here is the high point of the parable. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And then this little piece of detail. He ran to his son. A Middle Eastern patriarch did not run. He moved and was expected to move at a dignified pace, at a pace appropriate to his status. To run, he would have to lift up his robe. That would have exposed his legs, which would have been a cause of humiliation and ridicule. This father doesn't care. He ran. Having run to his son, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And before the son can launch into his intended speech of repentance, the father demonstrates his love by calling for the best robe, the ring and the sandals, and for the preparation of a feast. In the words of verse 24, For this son of mine was dead, and is alive again, he was lost and is found. And so by now in these three parables, a familiar pattern has emerged. A lost sheep. Shepherd goes out and looks for sheep. Shepherd finds sheep and rejoices with others when he does. A lost coin. Woman loses coin. Woman searches for coin. Woman finds coin and rejoices with others when she does. A lost son. The father waits for the son to return. The father welcomes the son and rejoices when he does. But it is the third parable which develops what has been suggested and hinted at in the first two parables. Repentance means that we do not have to do the work required to bring us back to God. Rather, it is by acknowledging and accepting that we have been found by God who welcomes us with joy. And the sinners and the tax collectors listening to these stories will have no difficulty in identifying with the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And you might say in these three stories we have a threefold illustration of the loving initiative of God. Three stories depicting lost sinners being found and their being rejoicing in heaven when they are found. The end. Well, of course, that's not the end. There is another part to the story. Now enter the older brother. We have already met him at the beginning of the parable when he too received his inheritance. But unlike the younger brother, he did not take himself off to a distant country. He stayed at home. But in another sense, he was just as lost as the younger brother. Where the younger son had once been in a far country, the lostness of the older son is seen by the fact 
that on the day of his brother's homecoming, he was in the field, outside the father's presence. What we call the parable of the lost son is really the parable of two lost sons. As he approaches his father's house, he becomes aware of music and dancing. And he learns that his younger brother, the one who has brought shame and disgrace on the family, has come home. And to the older brother's way of thinking, what should have happened was that the younger brother should have been given, at the very most, a cool reception. If he was going to be accepted back, of, back at all, it should be on the basis that he made every effort to make restitution for the inheritance he had squandered. But that's not what happened. The younger brother instead is welcomed back with open arms and rejoicing and feasting. The reaction of the older brother is one of anger. And he refuses to go into the feast. This in itself was another insult to the father. But what does the father do? Just as he ran to the younger son, embraced him and kissed him, now again the father takes the initiative. He goes out and pleads with the older son. And just as we have been given details of the speech the younger son was going to make, now we're given details of the speech actually made by the older son. And in his speech, the older son or brother concentrates on what he has done, on his own efforts. He has been obedient and dutiful. He has behaved in the way he was supposed to behave. He has played by the rules. And what has he got for doing all that? Nothing. He has forgotten or chooses to forget that he has already received his share of the inheritance. And he is consumed by the fact that this son of yours, he cannot bring himself to use the phrase my brother who has behaved so badly is not dealt with as he should have been but instead he is fussed over and honoured with a feast the last words of the story are spoken by the father in verse 32 and verse 32 echoes verse 24 but with a difference in verse 24, the father says, This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Verse 32 is structured in exactly the same way. But this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And there the narrative ends. The story is left open-ended. We are not told what eventually happened. We are left wondering what the response of the older brother finally was. 
He might have said, Father, you're right. I should be glad that my brother has returned. And he goes into the feast and is reconciled with his brother. And the father celebrates with his two sons. An alternative ending might be for him to say, Father, this is unfair. This is against everything I have believed in, and I want no part in it. My brother is dead to me. And he turns on his heel and leaves his father's house. How the story might have ended is not important. What is important is that by now the Pharisees will have realized that the older brother stands for them. They are the 99 sheep of the first parable who were not lost, who on their own terms do not need to repent, who are secure in their own righteousness. They are the nine coins of the second parable who were not lost. They are the older brother. They are the ones who have obeyed the rules. Now the challenge has been thrown down to the Pharisees. Are they prepared to follow the example of the father who rejoices over the fact that this son of mine was dead and is alive again? Are they going to rejoice over the fact that this brother of yours was dead and is alive again? The late Kenneth E. Bailey was a Bible scholar who spent many years lecturing in the Middle East. He studied this chapter intensively, and he sums up the teaching of the Lord Jesus like this. You accuse me of welcoming sinners and eating with them. You are correct. That is precisely what I do. I search out sinners that I might, by any means, convince them to come in and eat with me. But my dear friends, do you not understand that this costly offer of love is made for runaways and stay-at-homes, for prodigals and older sons, for sinners and Pharisees, for tax collectors and scribes. You are the older son. In spite of your hostility, I love you and urge you to sit and eat with me. When I sit and eat with sinners, we are not celebrating their sin, but my costly love. That same costly love is now offered to you. My banquet table is spread. If you accept, then the banquet is an occasion of even greater joy. I seek not only them, but also you. Come, be reconciled to your brother. Accept the love I offer. And in that eloquent summary, we have the response of the Lord Jesus to the complaint of the Pharisees. 
But of course, this is much more than just an episode in the life of the Lord Jesus. It's much more than an exploration of the gulf between Pharisees and others. There are spiritual truths here, spiritual truths which will be developed later in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, and no one better to do that. At the beginning of his ministry in his epistle to the Galatians, he recalls his previous way of life in Judaism. He recalls how that I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And then at the end of his ministry in his epistle to the Philippians, Again, he recalls, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. As Saul of Tarsus, Paul had once been just like the older brother. He had once been just like the Pharisees who muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But then came that fateful encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And Paul began to learn the lesson the Pharisees needed to learn. He saw his status as a Pharisee in a different light. And he would write to his spiritual heir, Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And Luke chapter 15 is an illustration of the collision between law and grace. It begins with the complaint of the Pharisees. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The response of the Lord Jesus is to confirm exactly that, but then to show that that is a cause not for complaint, but for rejoicing. And as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke, we will come to chapter 19. And there the Lord Jesus will sum up the teaching of chapter 15. And in one short statement, he says to Zacchaeus, a tax collector, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful portion of your word and how that it is so rich and shows us your saving initiative in the Lord Jesus who came into the world to save sinners. We thank you for our response to that initiative and if there is anyone here who 
has not yet responded, we pray that this might be the day that they would do so. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.